turn to Micah chapter 6, and as a way of refreshing ourselves, Micah is the prophet that is um, uh, ministering to a downtrodden people that were exploiting uh, the people in uh, Judean society. Uh, He prophesies during a time of a lot of corruption. They took advantage of the poor, the weak, for their own selfish ends. Uh, They had corrupt rulers, false prophets, ungodly priests, all became targets for Micah's prophetic barbs. Micah exposes judges who are bought by bribes and merchants who use deceptive weights. In those days, when he went to the grocery store, they would weigh it on a balance scale. They had different sets of weights depending on who they were selling to. Uh, The pollution of sin has permeated every level of society in Judea and Israel. So Micah is primarily looking at the north, but uh, Judah also is um, uh, prophesied against also. If we would divide the book of Micah, it has three sections, one through three, the prediction of judgment. Uh, The second part is a prediction of restoration. That was four and five. We talked on on Sunday. Um, Our text was the kingdom age, one through five. From chapter 4. And then tonight, the third section, 6 and 7, the plea for repentance. The Lord is not willing that he would bring repentance, but he always brings warning, hoping that the, the people would hear and repent. So as we dive into chapter 6, we'll read the first five verses, and it's really the Lord's plea. Here now, the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountain, the Lord's complaint. And you strong foundation of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I set before you Moses and Aaron, And Miriam, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. So he's basically saying, what more could I have done? I've delivered you, I salvaged you. And then he uses this illustration that, that I'm not going to take for granted you understand who Balaam and Balak is. But in verse 5, he says, remember now uh, what Balak, the king of Moab, did. This was right before they were going to enter into the land. The 40 years is pretty much over. They're getting ready to enter in. And um, to follow through with this, uh, let's go back to Numbers chapter 22. So the background for this is um, they're right on the borders of getting ready to enter the land. And we're introduced to this prophet whose name is Balaam. Um, In a nutshell, I'll have to summarize, he's a prophet for hire. And uh, the king is Balak of Moab. Well, he's heard... Everywhere these people go, 
the God that goes before them wipes them out. And so he is scared and he doesn't know what to do. And so he knows and he's heard about Balaam, that he's a prophet of this God. So he sends some men over to him and um, basically says, how'd you like a job? And he says, oh, even if he gave me a whole house full of gold, hint, 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 I couldn't say anything either for or against unless the Lord would speak it. I could only speak what the Lord says, uh, even if he gave me a whole household of gold. <laughs> ah, so he got the wink and the nod, and um, he, was, he was up for hire. So they take him to a place, and he says, curse these people so that we don't die because we're next on the list. And so he goes up to curse him, and instead of cursing him, he says, oh, how beautiful are the tents of Israel and how the Lord loves his people. And he couldn't do it. He, wa- he wanted to do it, but he couldn't do it. And he says, what are you doing? You know, I brought you here to curse them, and now you're blessing them. Um, he asked the Lord, verse 12, and, and God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You will not curse the people, for they are blessed. And um, so Balaam um, doesn't listen to the Lord. Of course, this is a famous story where he, he, um, uh, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord ready to take um, Balaam out. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make it through, through uh, these chapters tonight. I can see that right now. How can you pass over verse 28? So the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. So the next time you think the Lord can't use you, all right? You know, if he can use if he can use a jackass, he can use anything. <laughs> and the, the donkey said, "What what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times?" Now, what's funny is that Balaam answers the donkey, <laughs> and Balaam said to the donkey, "Because you you have abused me, I, I wish there were a sword in my hand right now, and I'd kill you." So the donkey said to Balaam, "Am I not your donkey?" And what you have written ever since I became yours to this day, was I ever disposed to to do this? He said, no. <laughs> so he's got a conversation going on with his donkey. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head, and, and he fell flat on his face. Um, you know, this raises so many questions in my mind. Um... I've often wondered, I, I used to have golden retrievers, and I used to watch my, my dog look at things, just follow things around the room. And I often wondered, I'd think of this here, and if you could do it for a donkey, and his eyes were open, you know, right now the Bible says that we're surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses. And um, there are angelic and demonic spirits at all times, all around. We're just... We're not allowed to look into that dimension. Um, Elijah's servant was able to, and in other places. Anyway, the Lord tells him, go, but only say what I say. So now we have them going and trying to curse, but if we look at um, verses 5 and 6 of this here, uh, he sent messengers of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
which is near the river of the land, the sons of the people, to call them, saying, look, the people are coming from Egypt. Set, uh, See, they cover the face of the earth and setting next to me. Therefore, please come at once and curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you cursed is cursed. So, Balaam, do you want a job? Well, turn to the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And let me draw your attention to verse 11. The book of Jude is God's judgment on false teachers. And in verse 10, we're given three examples of false prophets that God judged. So what happened, before I read these verses, let me tell you the rest of the story. Every time Balaam went to curse Israel, he couldn't do it. And finally, the, the king, Balak, had had it, and he says, you're no use to me at all. And he says, um, he still wants the money, but he hadn't done his job. And so he said, look, I can't curse these people, but I know how God will curse them. So the counsel that Balaam gave to the king Balak is this. He says, tell you what, you go get your pretty young gals, and you bring them down just by themselves, and uh, you bring them into the camp of Israel, and you, you let your gals show how they worship their God. And um, you don't have to use your imagination too much. We're talking... Um, sexual immorality to the hilt. And he says, the people will fall into that trap. I won't curse them, but God will curse them because they will yield to that temptation. And that's exactly what happened. Balaam got his money. He gave counsel how to get the people cursed, but he couldn't do it himself. Now, Jude, verse 10, woe to them, verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Well, the way of Cain is that he hated his brother and uh, killed him. And they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. People in the ministry that are charlatans are a dime a dozen these days of prosperity teachers. And I could go through the whole list of them. So when you see them, know of the scripture. They're in it for the buck. And um, they will be held accountable. Uh, the motive of their heart will be exposed. Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. I do what I do because I love Jesus. Uh, you don't have enough money in the world to pay me to do that. Um, so Paul said, uh, the love of Christ constrains him. It didn't matter. He says, I'm content if I have money, and I'm content if I don't have money. I'm still preaching the gospel. It was never an issue. It should never be an issue. Good place for an amen. We, we do what we do because we love Jesus, period. And, um, you know, in the early days, seven years I painted houses. Very content. Great job. Listened to Chuck all day or music and mindless job. You know, paid the bills. And as time went by, the Lord blessed. And then we had, were able to go on and um, have a salary and all that kind of stuff and but it was in the Lord's time that these took place. But the warning here, here Balaam is used as a, a negative example in ministry 
um, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So here's three guys, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. What was the problem with Korah? Well, he had an attitude problem. He didn't like the idea that Moses was the leader. He wanted to be the leader. So he goes around and starts tapping people on the shoulder and talking to them and sweet-talking them, just like Absalom did with his father, David. Oh, David's too busy for you. He doesn't have time for you. But if you'd come to listen to me, oh, I'd hear your case. And, and it says, by doing this, he won the hearts of the people of Israel. And he was willing to kill his own father to have the throne. So when we read here the rebellion of Korah, he got all these people together and uh, said, Moses, you think God only speaks to you? Well, he speaks to me too. And um, so the Lord, Moses went and prayed. He says, all right, in the morning you have everybody that's on Korah's side stand over here. And everybody that is here. And Moses said, so that you'll know that the Lord has sent me to do what I'm doing. Let the earth open up and swallow all the people that are rebelling with Korah. The earth opened up, swallowed all the people that were in the rebellion. And so when we read here the rebellion of Korah, um, we have um, this example given to us. All right, let's go back to Micah, chapter 6. And when we read in verse 5 now, you have some reference point where it says, O my people, remember now when Balak, the king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. So he wants them to go back and and remember from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal that you might know the righteousness of the Lord. Now Micah, in verses 6 through 9, is going to reply after hearing this, and he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then this one of the greatest verses in the Bible And this is what the Lord is looking for. It is about as far away as of their lifestyle. But he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And we close the service on Sunday singing this song. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has... Uh, hear the rod who has appointed it. And so in 6 through 9, we have Micah's response. Lord, what can I do? Give me my firstborn son? Make a lot of offerings? And he says, no, it's not what I'm looking for. Um, the woman, woman at the well wanted to know, uh, where do we worship? I'm on Gerizim, where the, the, the uh, Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, or... You Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And the Lord says, neither. Neither. You're a Jew. And everybody knows that it's Jerusalem in the temple. He says, no. He says, the time has come. And now is that the Lord is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
It's another way of saying, not only loving the Lord, but it's now manifesting itself outwardly by being just in your business dealings. You don't have two sets of weights. You don't have two ways of doing business with people. You're just straightforward, and you're honest. And you're not arrogant, but you walk in a healthy fear of the Lord. And um, God pleads now in verses 10 and 11. He says, Are there yet the treasures of kindness in the house of the wicked? Now the treasures that he's referring to here, really the treasures of wickedness refers to the wealth they had accumulated in their unjust dealings. In other words, uh, skimming off the top or or finding a way to uh, find a, a, a loophole or whatever, but it's illegal and it's dishonest and it should be above God's people. Verse Uh, In the short measure that is in the abomination, shall I count pure those with the wicked balances? Now, again, we're getting to er every day buying and selling. And, uh, you know, they'd have their thumb on the scale while the guy wasn't looking. And he was skimming that off off the top. And uh, we hear it all the time. You know, big corporation leaders or CEO leaders that are... Taking it, taking it on the side or under the table, and um, one of one of the difficulties in working um, in Haiti is the whole country is corrupt. Most of the churches are corrupt. Betty would often say it's very difficult to find somebody who's just honest because it's just so much a part of the culture, and it, it bothers me to no end. In the early days. Uh, They call it greasing the palm. That's the Haitian term for it. You're not going to get what you sent down through custom unless somebody's palm is greased. Now, that's Haitian for slip them some money, and then they'll make sure that your stuff gets through. And if you don't, then it's going to stay in customs. And um, um, it was wrong to do so, but I did it. And I might have been wrong in doing it. I don't know. The Lord, the Lord knows. I know that eventually what needed to get to the people got to the people. But I know it would stay in customs all day long unless something was given to them. So that's 10 and 11. That's God's plea. Then in 12 through uh, the rest of this verse uh, here, uh, these false balances, um, Let's read it, and I'll come back and comment on it. And with the bag of deceit, deceitful weights, and her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and her tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You will make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Amri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. And you walk in their counsel, that I will make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, 
Therefore, you shall hear the reproach of my people. Now, the Lord uses an example, and again, I have to do a little sidetrack here because you may not be familiar with who uh, Omri is, and all the works of Ahab's house are done. The two are connected. Why are they connected? Because the son of Omri is Ahab. When we get into this section here, he's using them, and I have to spend a little bit of time talking about what happened in Israel during the reign of Omri and how it extended into King Ahab. Omri was one of the kings in the northern kingdom. In fact, he was one of the meanest. Omri and Zimri reigned as rival kings until both died. And Omri prevailed to rule over the entire northern kingdom. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 24, we read, And he bought the hill Samaria of Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on a hill, and he called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shemer over the hill, Samaria. That city is called Samaria to this day, and the ruins of the city which Amri built are still there. But Amri is not really the one who developed the city. After the death of Amri, Ahab came to the throne. We read further. So Amri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. All right, let's keep it in context here. Let's go back to verse 16. The Lord's complaint is he's saying, for the statutes of Amri are kept, this is what you're keeping, people, and all the works of Abraham's house are done, and you're walking in their counsel. And the idea is you're not walking in mine. Well, now we have to ask the question, what was the counsel then of Ahab, and why was he so bad? Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. You just want to sit on that for a second? More than all that were before him. So up till this time, he was the worst of the worst. That's 1 Kings 16, 28 through 30. Now that was something, uh, let me tell you, but one of the reasons he was able to do that was because he had a great little helper in his wife, Jezebel. It came to pass, if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took it a step farther and he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Zidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped Baal. That's First Kings sixteen thirty-one. Ahab and Jezebel made the worship of Baal the religion of Israel. Just as um, uh, the president in Haiti has dedicated a voodoo as a religion of Haiti, so uh, Ahab made the worship of Baal because of Jezebel. Um, the official religion of Israel. So now, verse 16 is, you can see the Lord's complaint. Let's read verse 16. Well, let me finish this here. Um, They rejected the word of the Lord, and they walked in their counsel instead. Now, in Micah's day, almost 200 years later, the effect and influence of their evil reigns are apparent. 
So it festered, and it got worse and worse and worse. Now let's read verse 16 again before we go to chapter 7. The Lord's complaint is you you follow the statutes of Omri. Well, now you know who Omri is. He's the father of Ahab and what they done, and he walked in that council. What was their council? The worship of Baal, influenced by marrying Jezebel. And I will make you a desolation in your inhabitants a hissing, therefore you will bear the reproach of my people. That's the Lord's complaint. And he's got a just complaint. Now, in chapter 7, uh, we have in the first six verses here, Micah's reply when he hears this. He says, woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruit, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the ripe fruit which my soul desires. Uh, in the first nine verses of chapter 7, the prophet Micah confesses that God is accurate in his complaint against Israel. The charge and the accuracy of it touches the heart of the prophet. He is not unfeeling. He does have feelings. He's moved and motivated by the judgment which is coming upon the people. We have in this first section, therefore, a picture of his sorrow, uh, his real grief, and a wail. He says, woe is me. And he's in grief. Woe is me. You know, verse 2, the faithful man has perished from the earth. Nobody around here is doing what the Lord wants. Uh, there's, there's no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with, with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. Uh, the prince asks for a gift. The judge wants a bribe. And the great men utter his uh, evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright is sharper than a thorned hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend and do not put confidence in a companion and guard the door of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For sons dishonor father, daughters rise against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are those of his own household. That's a direct quote from Matthew ten thirty-six. So let's contrast what we just read. Micah is replying, Lord, you're right. Everybody I know is on the take. Everybody I know is dishonest. Fathers are against family members. Nobody can trust a friend. And what does the Lord want? Well, let's go back to chapter 6, verse 8. What do you want, Lord? Well, I want, I want you to do justly. I want you to be fair. I want you to love mercy. I want you to have a heart for people instead of just thinking of yourself and how you might gain. And I want, I want you to, to walk humbly instead of with a haughty spirit, pride. Pride is the worst sin of the Bible. It's the original sin. P-R-I-D-E. Right in the middle of the word is a letter I. And um, instead of these people were elevating themselves, stepping on people, climbing the corporate ladder, that's what we call it today, whatever it takes to get to the top. I mean, what's the big news today um, in Hollywood? Uh, the, the, the producer that's getting busted for all the sexual innuendos that were there. Well, he's guilty as charged, absolutely. 
But the old saying is it takes two to tango. And um, if this is what it takes, some of these young girls are thinking, to make it, there were some of them. I believe that what is done is absolutely wrong. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. But some of these girls didn't say no. And if it meant they could get to the top by acting that way, then they, they were willing, some of them were willing to do so. So it's the same. We see it, we see it in our society, and we see it um, in Micah's day too. So the first six verses here is Micah's reply, and I want to contrast what the Lord wants is just honesty. Do things that are right. Even non-believers have a conscience, right? Even non-believers know what's right and what's wrong. If you steal, you know it's wrong. If you lied, you know you lied. Somebody want to give me an amen? amen? We all know that. Before we're saved, we know that. And it's what convicts us. We read in, in John, the reason the Holy Spirit was sent, number one and foremost, was to convict the world of sin. You know that what you're doing is wrong. And the Holy Spirit points the finger at you, and you can respond one or two ways. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. And then you finally say, yes, I am. Guilty as charged. Everything you said about me, Lord, is true. And I need you to forgive me of my lying, stealing, filling all the blanks of your sins. So that brings us to verse 7 through 20. So let's read that, and I'll come back and comment on uh, these verses. Uh, It's the promise here of uh, the final salvation. Verse 7, Therefore I look to the Lord, and I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And I will hear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where's the Lord your God? My eyes will see her, nor she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from the sea to the sea and to the mountains to the mountains, Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. So in these uh, scriptures here leading up to verse 14, it says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in woodland in the midst of Carmel, and let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. This verse 14, feed the flock with the rod, the flock of thine heritage. In Micah 6, 9, we read that the rod was a rod of judgment, but here it's a rod of comfort. 
The rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, a staff can be used one of two ways when you're dealing with sheep. You can um, uh, use it as, as a form of protecting the sheep from predators. Or if they get out of line, it has a hook on them, and you can pull them back in line. So it's, it's um, twofold. I think it simply refers to the staff of a shepherd, which could be used these two ways, to protect, also used to discipline. Feed thy people with thy rod. God disciplines us and he instructs us. Now, we can get totally sidetracked here and go to Romans and talk about any father who has a son, he corrects him when he does wrong. And uh, it's, it's, just, um, it's just natural. And um, I've told this story before. The first, first time I was realized I was taller than my mother. And um, she always had the flies water on the refrigerator, and all she had to do was look at it, and that was enough to put the fear of, you better stop what you're doing, or you're going to get the flies water. Well, now I'm taller than she is. And I said, I'm taller than you are. And I'm not going to do what you, you said. And she just totally backed down. Didn't, didn't say a word. Just totally backed down. Until dad got home. <laughs> she didn't say, wait till your father gets home. She just kept that to herself. Well, mom and dad had a little talk when I got home. And he said, son, we're going upstairs. And dad took me to the woodshed. And after he got done with me, he said, if you ever, I can remember to this day, if you ever speak to your mother that way again, I will kill you. Well, of course, he didn't mean that, but he certainly got his point across. And I never talked back to my, well, I'm sure I did, but never, never, uh, I was testing the waters, you know. How far could I go with this thing, you know? I'm taller than she is, and, well, I found out really quick. Now, my point, without getting too sidetracked here, is if your earthly fathers correct you because they love you, they do it for their benefit. Son, you're not going to talk to your mother that way. And you're going, to, you're going to learn to respect your mother. Then he goes on to say, if your earthly fathers are doing it for their own so that they can eat their supper in peace, how much more will your heavenly father um, not allow his children to, to get away with anything? He's going to correct you. The Christian who is living in sin and getting away with sin is what um, Hebrews says, they, they use the word bastard. You're illegitimate. You're not a son at all. You're not even a Christian. Because a Christian is going to get bonked, is going to get pulled aside, and is going to get disciplined. The judgment of God starts where? In the household of God. And if your, earth, your earthly father did it, your heavenly father is going to be that much more faithful to do it but this time he really means it, son, this is for your own good. How many times did, have you heard the words, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? I never believed that for a second. But um, our Heavenly Father does it. And if he's not doing it, then you better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because there will be that conviction, a quenching of the Spirit of God. And you go, oh, something's not right here. And what's going on? Where's, where's the sweet fellowship, Lord? Where's that still small voice? And so this is what 
verse 14 is about, that um, the staff is twofold, to comfort, to bring conviction, to bring repentance, and then to bring restoration. Now, after the discipline had been dealt out, I knew I did wrong. But then when it was all taken care of, I could sit down at the supper table and say, pass the mashed potatoes, please. Everything's fine, back to normal, because it's all been worked out now. All right, verse 15 through 20. As in the days when he came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their, their ears shall be death. They will lick the dust like a serpent. They will crawl from their holes like the snake of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he does delight in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So Micah uh, ends here on a, on a high note as God brings um, um, them Israel's sin put them out of the land temporarily, but God will make good his promise in spite of their sin. Their sin does not cancel out God's promises and God's covenant with these people any more than a child of God loses his salvation when he sins. His sins means that he is going to the woodshed for a good whipping if he doesn't confess it and get it straightened out. But if, and this is important, this word if again comes in because you just said if you sin, you're not going to lose your salvation. So now we, we're thinking eternal security. No, again, here's the if. But if, he will come back to God. It's always when you repent, you have to again confess it to the Lord and return to the Lord. God will graciously pardon sin. The prodigal son did not get a whipping when he came to his father He got the whipping in the far country. And you can be sure of one thing, God's child will never be able to get by with sin. We see that again in the scriptures. So again here, the analogy is, you know, sin is, was who was it that Adams, I can't remember, but he was counseling a guy, a pastor, and, and, um, the guy was determined to go his own way, and the pastor said to him as he's going out, he said, sin is hard. That's the last words that he had said to this guy. Sin is hard. And then he didn't see this guy for a long time, and he got beat up in the world. He went out, and he lived a life of sin. And he came back months later into the pastor's office, and he looked at him and said, sin is hard. <laughs> and... You know, he wanted to come home like the prodigal. You see, the woodshed can be the world. That's what the case was the guy in First Corinthians 5 that was messing around, sleeping around, and everybody in the church knew it, and nobody was doing anything about it. Paul says, look, I'm not even there, but I've already judged the situation. Kick him out. Just kick him out. 
and pray for the destruction of his flesh. You know, what kind of love of God is that? It's the best thing you can do. Because if you continue in that, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you're deceived. You th- to think that you can live in adultery and fornication and continue in it, and you're still going to heaven, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, you're deceived. So the most loving thing that Paul could have done for this guy is say, turn him over to the devil and pray for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved in the day of judgment. Well, that means the soul isn't saved right now and he's in part of the church. And uh, much of the church is deceived today with uh, getting away from the scriptures as a final authority, leaning upon their own understanding, making it up sort of as they go. But what a great verse. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's another way of saying that when you do sin, 1 John 1, 9 comes into play. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all of them. Then he goes on to say, I will separate them as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? As far as it can go. And then I will remember them no more. The best thing about being God is that God can forget. If 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 you've... I remember... When I first got saved, whenever there was an altar call, I always went forward just to make sure. <laughs> and so you're, you want to be secure in, in, in that. And um, the idea that God, you confess to sin, he says, what, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. God can forget? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. I will remember them no more. The problem with being human is we can be forgiven and the devil will come back and go, oh, yeah, you call yourself a Christian. Don't you remember when? And then fill in the blank. And you call yourself a Christian. Well, that's condemnation. And Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He will never bring that sin up again. It's been dealt with. It's been taken care of. That's why he said to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you. But he says, don't do it anymore. He didn't condone it. He just said, go and sin no more. That's it. She's free. She called him Lord. And um, she was out of the prostitution business. And she probably followed the Lord, you know, the rest, the rest of her days. We're going to start chapter, a new book, the book of Nahum. <laughs> Some of you were thinking I wasn't going to get this far. I'm not saying we're going to get done, but we're going to give give it a good shot and get started. We've just finished Micah. These are the minor prophets. Again, they're called minor because they're short. Nahum is just three chapters long. Um, For everyone, the main theme here, to whom much is given, much is required, Nineveh had been given the privilege of knowing the one true God under Jonah's preaching. Well, we just got done with Jonah, so we know that Jonah didn't want to do it because he hated the Assyrians, the Ninevites. But, you know, God persuaded him with the, with the fish. And uh, under Jonah's preaching, the great Gentile city had repented and God had graciously stayed his judgment. However, 100 years later, Now, we're going to go into this and talk about revivals on Sunday. And it really is a very interesting pattern. I'll just touch on it here. Uh, 
that after every genuine revival, it seems to have a life expectancy of a generation. And then there's a, a falling away, including the early church. When John wrote, John was still alive in 96 AD when he wrote the book of Revelation. And most of it is false doctrine creeping into the church, ultimatums given, either you get back to your first love or else I'm leaving. This is Jesus. So even with the apostles, they weren't 100 years into um, the birth of the church and they got to deal with um, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and um, um, the other doctrines that were were creeping in, uh, establishing a hierarchy. Well, I I hate that. I hate the idea. You guys are servants. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you have to learn to be a servant of all. And so when you study the book of Judges, here's a 360-year cycle where they do good for a while, and then it falls off, and then God raises up a judge, and you have this going on for 360 years. That's the whole book of Judges. Up and down, up and down, up and down. What's your point? A hundred years earlier, I think it, it might be a hundred, might be two, I can't remember. We'll get, we'll get into it here. But Nineveh had repented, but now time has passed. The Assyrians have forgotten their revival, and they have returned to their habits of violence, idolatry, and arrogance. And as a result, Babylon will so destroy the city that no trace of it will remain a prophecy fulfilled in painful detail. Now, this was a judgment that's going to come. There's, this one is no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Um, Nahum is not going to go to Nineveh. He's going to stay from afar. He said, you guys have crossed the line. You, you, you knew to whom much is given, much is required, and yet you've, you've uh, lost it all. Um, reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's um, uh, grandson, um, Belteshazzar, or was that Daniel's name? Everybody know who I'm talking about? Nebuchadnezzar's son that Daniel ministered to, who was arrogant. And Daniel confronts him. He says, you should have known better because of your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. God had to humble him. And you knew that. And you didn't learn the lesson from him, therefore judgment is coming upon you. And that's what we have the writing on the wall. Meanie, meanie, tackle you farson. You've been weighed in the balance, you've been found wanting, and now judgment is going to come, and your kingdom is going to be given to the Medes and the Persians, and you're dying tonight. That's exactly what happened. He didn't learn the lesson. That's the whole book of Nahum. What I just told you, this is the whole book of Nahum. Because Nahum was just saying, it's over. You guys, you should have known better, and yet you haven't. If you're taking notes, it divides up nicely. Chapter 1 is the verdict of vengeance, what God will do. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is a vision of vengeance, how God will do it. And chapter 3 is vindication of vengeance, why God will do it. The survey of Nahum When God finally convinced his prophet Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh, the whole city responded with repentance, and Nineveh escaped destruction. The people humbled themselves before the one true God. From the king on down, they put on 
sackcloth and ashes and repented. But their humility soon changed to arrogant as Assyria reached its zenith as the most powerful empire in the world. About a century, okay, so it's a hundred years after the preaching of Jonah, God now calls Nahum to proclaim the coming destruction of Nineveh. This time there will be no escape because their measure of wickedness is full. Unlike Jonah, Nahum does not go to the city but declares his oracle from afar. There is no hope of repentance. Nineveh's destruction is decreed, it's described, and it is deserved. Chapter 1, Nineveh. Verses 1 through 8, God's vengeance and judgment. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the elk Oshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. And the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. If I would liken it to what's on the horizon for our times, is all the stuff that we're seeing and we're seeing it getting worse and worse every single day. By the way, it's not gonna get any better. It's only gonna get it worse. So anybody that tells you it's gonna get better, they haven't read their Bible very well. The birth pains are constant, they're daily, and they come in different shapes and forms from fires to killings to shootings of, of um, every day. Just, to, just tonight, there's another one that happened out east, and um, what's happening just in the last couple of days in, in the Middle East as... Um, they fired on Israeli jets, so Israeli jets took out the whole compound that fired upon him. The Russian ambassador is going to be in Israel, and it's going to be awkward. And uh, so the stage is set with Iran talking big talk, um, North Korea threatening us, you know, doubling down, trash talk, and um, they have no reference point. When it comes to North Korea, they, they have these Google things where you can go and look at the world at night and see it all lit up, except North Korea is black because there's no lights on in North Korea at night. They are so secluded that this little short, fat guy could actually do what he's claiming he will do. He, he didn't think anything about killing his relatives or if a general looks at him the wrong way, take him out. Let's take him out. Why? Well, I don't like the way he looked at me. That's, that's the mentality of this guy. So this is a world that we, li- we live in today. I was listening to Barry and Mike McIntosh. Uh, Judy and I, uh, one of the great things about Roku is you can get his channel on it for free. So we were listening to Barry and Mike last night, and every time I listen to Mike, you know, he's got me looking up at the end of a, a, their daily news briefings, and this was a week, just a week ago. And um, his main point was the exponential of every day something happening and quicker together, just like the Lord said with the birth pains. That's the way it's going to be until the Lord finally takes us out of here. But there has to be a breaking point, a tilting point. Where the Lord says, all right, enough, church, come on home. And now we have Revelation 6, 17. 
the wrath of the Lamb being poured out on, on this planet. We see the Lord being patient right now with the world, with its sin. But um, I know this is a little bit of sidetrack, but the Middle East is so staged for Ezekiel 38 to happen tomorrow. Very easily. It could trigger Isaiah chapter 17, the destruction of Damascus. Um, the, the, the Atollas in Iran, they're talking trash talk today. Um, anyway, now I'm, now I'm getting sidetracked, and we're not going to get through all these chapters, so let's get back here. So the first couple verses is, <clears throat> the Lord is long-suffering and patient, but there is that line that can be crossed, and Nineveh has crossed it, and he reserves his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. It will not at all acquit the wicked. So nobody gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything. Everything matters. Everything counts. The Lord says that even every idle word that you speak, you're going to have to give an account for. That should cause us to sit up and take note because the Lord is taking notes of every idle word that we speak. It's all being written down. And I have to give an account for it. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan, Carmel, wither. And the flowers of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? One of the terms that we use for the Great Tribulation, it has a lot of different titles. It's called Daniel's 70th week. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called the Tribulation. Jesus calls it a time that has never been, nor will ever be. But another title for it is the Indignation. So here he's using it in reference to the judgment of what's coming down on Nineveh. Who can stand before his indignation? Or who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. So as we look at um, this first a couple of verses here. Um, it talks about the Lord is slow to anger. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Doesn't want anybody to perish. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. And when he sent him there, he didn't want the job. You know, he wanted out. He hated the Ninevites because of their cruelty. And they were extremely cruel. I don't know if I'll make it that far, but if the Assyrians were coming to your hometown, people committed suicide because of the, of the sheer evilness. They're like ISIS. And um, uh, it, was, it was better to take your own life than to get caught by an Assyrian who was on the warpath, similar to ISIS. So picking it up now then in verse 9 through 15, the destruction of Nineveh and the deliverance of Judah what do you conspire against? What, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an, 
utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, wicked counsel. Um, uh, Probably a reference to Sennacherib. Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer out of the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the molded image, and I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who, who brings good tidings, who proclaim peace. O Judah, by the way, that's a direct quote from Romans ten fifteen, And... Um, let's make the connection. I don't want to rush through this. It's too good. So we'll, make, we'll read 15, and then we'll, we'll come back and make a New Testament. Because as we go through this, I want you to see how the Holy Spirit, if we were just reading Romans 10, 15, we'd never have any idea that it's a prophecy that comes from Romans, I mean from the book of Nahum chapter 1. So verse 15 again. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. So this is bringing comfort. It's twofold. It's a judgment against Nineveh, but this is comforting to Judah because now they don't have to fear them anymore. So this part here, the Lord is speaking to Judah. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. All right, let's go to Romans 10. Opened right up to it. Romans 10, 15. How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good, glad tidings of good things. It's also in Isaiah 52, 7, but it's also from the book of Nahum. What is he saying here? I'm going to do something unprecedented and stop at this verse. No gasps, no unbelief. Dwight's going to stop before 8 o'clock. Inconceivable. <laughs> let's, leave it at, let's leave it at a high note because I, I got my text for Sunday from here. And um, it's going to be a sidetrack. So we cracked the surface of Nahum. You guys already know the end of the story because I told you the end of the story before it started. Nineveh's toast. They've gone too far. And, but it's good news. And here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying that, um, he's talking about how are people going to know unless we talk to them about it? Verse 15, how shall they preach unless they are sent? In other words, what we're doing tonight is studying through God's word. According to the book of Ephesians, 
Um, this is for the equipping of the saints. So my job is to teach the word. Joshua's job is to teach the word. Uh, pastor, teacher, they, they should go together. It shouldn't be one or the other. Pastors should be teachers. Evangelists should be evangelists. All too often on a Sunday morning, it's an evangelical message to people who are already saved. And so the idea is not to preach, but to teach. Why? So that you guys got some meat on your bones so that you can do the work of ministry. The misconception in the, in the world today that that sort of stuff is just for pastors and the board members or the deacons to do. No, that's your job. I'm doing my job so that you can do the work of ministry. So the question is, well, how shall they preach unless they are, are sent? We have to be sent out, get established, let the Lord build his house in his time, and then as we're faithful to continually teach the word of God, simply teach, simply, then the Holy Spirit is faithful to take the word of God, plant it in your heart, You leave here just a little bit stronger than when you came in, just a little bit more sure that, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's what God has called me to do. I'm a Christian first, and then whatever you do as your profession is second. But uh, you're a Christian first, and you're to be salt and light. And, And then in commenting on it, the Lord says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Here's the book of Nahum that has nothing good in it except for the people of Judah. And so Nahum gets to be the preacher of good news. Hey, guess what, Judah? No more Nineveh. Nineveh's toast. They're gone. You don't have to worry about Nineveh anymore. And believe me, they did. They were ISIS. And if they were, if they, they were on a campaign, um, you did not want to run into an, an Assyrian. Because of their brutality. People really did take their own selves out before an Assyrian would get to them. So it's a comforting to Judah. And so as we look, we've cracked the surface a little bit with um, Nahum tonight. The, 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 actually, chapter 2 and 3, we're going to see that the justice and the goodness of God exhibited in the execution of his decision to destroy Nineveh. God didn't just talk about destroying Nineveh. God did it, and he did it in a very remarkable way. And um, um, I'm going to leave it at that. The instrument of choice is going to be Babylon, and um, they're going to destroy the city in 612 B.C., and I'll leave it with that much. So the next time we come back and finish up chapters 2 and 3, it's going to be more uh, a sidetrack on Sunday of, um, of the first chapter here. So, Lord, I thank you for your word this evening. We thank you that nothing can change uh, what you said is going to take place. Nahum is used as an instrument and a declaration of the destruction of Nineveh. But at the same time, he's used as an instrument of comfort for Judah because they won't have to worry anymore about the wickedness of this evil 
group of people that once knew about you and turned their back on you and walked away. And now they've crossed that line and, and you, we see you're going to deal with them. So, Lord, as we close tonight, we pray for our own country. You tell us to pray for our leaders, so we pray for our president. Give him wisdom. And as he deals um, with um, people that are, are set to come against your people, Israel. Lord, we pray for Israel in closing tonight. As we see um, the net being drawn closer and closer, that noose getting tighter and tighter every single day. Uh, we, we pray for Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, President Trump that... Um, we would pray for the, the peace of Jerusalem, even though we know clearly what your word says. In the meantime, Lord, help us be busy about our Father's business and prioritize you as a, not only our first love, but um, as a people with a mission to be lights to this dark world in these last days. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen.